The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 583 for Sunday, December 13th, 2015. <laughs> Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in questions, tips, cool stuff found. We're like car talk for Apple geeks, only more polite, we're told. The goal is for everybody to learn at least three new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Harry's at harrys.com or shave five off. That coupon code gets you five bucks off your first order at Casper. We're at casper.com slash MGG. Coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks. Smilesoftware.com slash geek is where you're going to go to learn all about Text Expander 5 after we tell you about it here later this episode. And lynda.com slash MGG, where you can get 10 free days of Linda's awesome training videos. We'll talk all about that shortly here. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in sweltering Fairfield, Connecticut. It is hard this year getting used to winter. Uh, and I know technically we're still in fall, of course, but uh, I, I'm, I'm well, I guess a better way to say it is I'm having trouble fully appreciating how warm it is because it hasn't really been cold yet. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's it. You know, this is the temperature that it is. So I'm, I, I haven't been like frigid and, and you know, bundled up um, to any significant degree yet to fully appreciate how warm it has been here but yeah it's it's gotten into the 50s every day for the last many days uh, that will change i am certain but after what nope. we went through last winter john i will take it yeah one of the local papers i think put some pictures showing people digging out in february so yeah it's coming it's oh it's coming yeah yeah it always does well usually so we've had some winters without snow without significant snow but uh, all right We'll see. Hey, um, I want to start by talking about mail today. Um, iOS mail in particular, but I had a, an interesting experience this week. And so I want to share something with you that um, I thought was obvious. And, and that's part of the problem of doing the show is we do so many different things. And, and there are so many things that we do in our daily lives with our computers and our devices that we just take for granted that everybody knows how to do. And sometimes it's hard to know what tips to share. I was having a staff meeting actually with uh, with the guys from Backbeat Media on Friday morning, in fact. And John uh, John Donahue, one of our sales reps, asked, ah, "You know, I'm having trouble searching Gmail on my iPhone." And so I'm like, "Why Gmail?" And I'm starting to, you know, I'm thinking too far ahead. I'm like, "Well, is he having an issue where it won't let him log in, or is he complaining about this or that?" And so I just held up my phone to the to the screen. We do a video chat. And I, uh, in my inbox, I just pulled down the, uh, I put my thumb on the, you know, on one of the messages and just pulled down, which of course pulls all the messages down and reveals a search box. And of course, you know, typed in a search term and, and, uh, sure enough, it shows that, uh, I'm searching for, you know, John Donnie or whatever it was I was searching for. And when you get your search results, you can pull them down again and choose whether you're searching all mailboxes or just the current mailbox. 
So I share this because not only did John not know this, but Jeff Quistad, who's one of our other sales reps at Backbeat, didn't know it either. So I have to assume that maybe some of you didn't know it. And I wanted to just share that because uh, it's a really, really handy thing to know how to do. So there we go. I'm sure you knew how to do that, John. I don't think I did. Well, there you go. Yeah. It, it, you know, and that, and that's the thing is all these things, there's a lots of these little simple things that we can all do, but uh, it's good to share them. So I would challenge you uh, listeners to send us your simple tips. We'll, we'll pull them together, but I, I really, I feel like that we're missing. It, it's easy to miss these types of things and at Mac or iOS, it doesn't matter. You know, send them into us feedback at MacGeekab.com and we will, uh, we will consolidate them and share them in, in perhaps an upcoming segment because there's lots of stuff to learn like this. So thank you to John and Jeff for highlighting that one for me. And I think John, that's a, uh, do you have, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here, John, but do you have any, uh, any simple tip to share or or you want to, uh, want to cogitate and and let that percolate a little bit? Um, I think I have one. Awesome. For the question that is coming up. Okay. You want me to read the question and then you'll share it? Yeah. All right. With well, that, share too. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. With that, uh, we'll go to Gene. Uh, Gene asks, he says, since iOS 9, I have been chasing down a very annoying Gmail issue. All my iOS devices eventually seem to forget how to access Gmail. I have two Gmail accounts set up, and at some point on any given iOS device, I'll get an error message when checking mail. And it says, I can't connect to the server imap.gmail.com. I've seen this too. Here's the thing. iOS maintains a cache of your uh, email accounts, their abilities to connect. I think it even maintains a cache of the IP addresses that it decides are associated with those, um, with, you know, with those domains. And it probably makes it easier when it's on mobile. If it, if it's on a tight connection, maybe it doesn't, go and do a DNS lookup. Maybe it just uses something from its cache. It remembers all kinds of stuff. And that memory slash cache will persist even if you delete an account and re-add it. And sometimes what that means is it's remembering something that's no longer current and can't connect to your mail server. So you have to change the name of your mail server. That's easier said than done, of course, because the name of the mail server is not up to you. The, the domain name of the mail server, imap.gmail.com is imap.gmail.com. You don't get to pick what name they use, but you can use a different name that they have already picked. And Google also uses imap.googlemail.com. And I find that probably every six months I have to swap my phone from one to the other. It's the same accounts. Everything's the same, but because I'm changing to a different mail server name, that seems to be the thing upon which these caches live. And the only way to get rid of these caches, in my experience, is to wipe the phone and not restore from a backup. So um, it, it, it's really an unavoidable thing. So with Google, if it says it can't connect to the server, imap.gmail.com, and you know that all your other devices are connecting just fine, try just going into your iOS mail settings, change the mail server from imap.gmail.com to imap.gmail.com googlemail.com and that can work quite well what do you think john 
So the one thing that I've had an issue with occasionally, it was just on the iPad, not the iPhone, but the mail that I was seeing. So if you, if you store your mail in a series of mailboxes, at least on iOS, if you go to mail and the mailboxes, you'll see under accounts, your various accounts. And if you click on one of them, you can then transverse your uh, uh, mailbox structure. Uh, but the thing that I notice sometimes is clicking on a folder, especially one that's buried, the same cache thing comes up, is that I will see messages that I know should be available. Like a lot of times before I go to a uh, uh, an event, I'll put emails related to it in a folder buried sure. uh, at Yahoo. And when I try to bring it up, sometimes what I see there is not current because I can just you know see the date and stuff like that. But on occasion, so actually this is common throughout a lot of places in iOS, but at least in mail, pulling down on the screen will kind of remind it, hey, could you check again? And sometimes I've had that unstick uh, a yep. stale mail display, because as you say, sometimes it caches and it doesn't do always a very good job of actually uh, refreshing the cache when it's when it should. So you have to sometimes force its hand and say, Normally it does, but sometimes it doesn't. That that that's been my experience. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Right, it doesn't always, but but that can help. Yep. All right, interesting stuff. Brian Monroe in the chat room says that you should, uh, if you're using Google for your email, you should not be using IMAP, but you should be using Active Active Sync or Exchange for it. And I think when he says really? that, well, I I, I disagree. I, I don't necessarily I disagree. I thought they I did that at one it. point. Yeah, I um, I'm getting a weird echo from you, John. Is uh, is something weird on your side? Is your are your earphones near your your uh, microphone? Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, much better. Thank you. I, I have tried that, but the problem is, I you choose Google as the the server or host or whatever it is. You know, it, iOS has like this this setup path that walks you down for Google. The problem with doing it that way and using Google's sort of defaults is you can't use multiple from addresses. Now, that I, I realize that makes me an edge case, but but a lot of us here that listen to this show are edge cases. So if you if you really only use whatever the addresses you have at Google, which might be your own domain or it might be just, you know, your name at Gmail dot com. And that's the only from address that you care to use with that account, then you're great. But if you want to set up or have set up. Uh, multiple from addresses, you can't use that path, or at least you couldn't with iOS 9 or any prior OS. I haven't tried it with 9.1 or 9. I think we're up to 9.2 now. So, it, it, yeah, worth it's worth checking out. Brian says it, it makes things better. So I, uh, I will trust him. He's out in the field doing this stuff a lot. So thank you, Brian Monroe. All right. Uh, moving on, we had a comment in or related to the last show from Bruce and Bruce says with the advent of El Capitan's removal of disk utility rep, disk utilities repair permissions feature Mac users are left to use the terminal command that you guys mentioned in the last show however there's an app called Repara Capo that gives you a simple GUI to do the same and it's uh I'll put a link in the show notes for it so that uh, it, it's it's at MacPark.ch and it's R I P A R A C A P O is the name of the app and sure enough it it will do this repair permissions thing from a GUI you don't have to remember the terminal command it's exactly the kind of stuff that uh, that we like so 
Thank you for that, Bruce. Very, very good stuff. Did you try Repara Couple yet, John? Yeah, I tried that, and it does what it advertises. And I'm looking here because I'm almost certain. So I updated Onyx on this machine the other day. It was an older version, um, Onyx being one of our favorite utilities to muck around with things. But they also have repair permissions. I don't know when they added that. And they're doing the same thing. The, the standard packages kind of fix it up. They do it as well. I, I stumbled across a screen where it said repair permissions. And I'm like, no, I'm running El Copy. <laughs> so they had that embedded at some point too. Maybe they just added it because I, I just downloaded the installer um, fresh on this, this machine. So there's another option for you. Very, very cool. Very cool, man. Okay, and now uh, a tip from a previous show from Scott. Uh-oh, I have two tips from Scott, or actually two things from Scott. i got to make sure I get the right one. We'll let Scott say it. Hey, John and Dave, this is Scott. I'm an ACN out of the Southern California area. Just listening to show 580, and you had someone who had a problem with the Apple software update servers and the Time Warner DNS. So as much as I love a conspiracy theory, uh, what probably is happening, and I've seen this quite a few times, is your IP address is showing up for the wrong city or state. So you're pointing to the wrong edge servers or caching servers. And the quickest way to find this out is do a what's my IP and see what city it's reporting in. For example, in Los Angeles, some of the places I've tested it show Virginia, which is a Time Warner hub and some show Los Angeles, the ones that show the wrong place get the wrong edge servers and software update is incredibly slow. So I hope that helps. And uh, thanks for putting on a great show. Thanks Scott. That's a, that's a great tip that that's totally possible. I have seen that too, where uh, sometimes it thinks I'm in a location that I am not. And it does, it makes sense that that would screw up software update service. Uh, It's also uh, important. It, it, some people were actually asking if Apple uses IPv6 for any of their software update servers. And I'm not convinced that they do. Uh, no one that I have talked to has seen Apple using IPv6 for software updates specifically. And that would theoretically help deal with this because you'd get less of a um, discrepancy. I, I would think less of it. Well, maybe you wouldn't get less of a discrepancy. Maybe it would be exactly the same discrepancy because it still needs to be geotagged properly. In fact, when I use IPv6 here, I think it finds me in Massachusetts. So perhaps it'd be even worse, but that's, it's, it's worth checking out. Um, to see if IPv6 is, is active in that case. You're still using IPv6, right, John? Yeah. As far as I know, this TP link has some sort of tunnel built in. Because I didn't, uh, I was using the hurricane thing. Oh, with your Apple router, right, right. Yeah, and when I got this, there, there was you know a bunch of options, and I was like, well, let me be lazy and go through all of them and see if any of them work. So I think they provide some sort of tunnel service. That makes sense. They might even have a deal with TP Link. It's I mean, with a hurricane. Yeah, yeah. It says like four, to, uh, but I saw you know similar terminology when I had to punch the data in manually. So I'm like, oh well, that sounds like a good option. It was like you know four to six encoding type or something i don't know i can bring it up no that's what yeah that's that's what as far as i know because yeah because yeah i can go to ip6 sites and they're like oh yeah here's your ipv6 address for me it's pretty much transparent as it should be yeah yeah it should be that's right that's right 
Very, so I did find with Onyx. So Onyx has one screen where you have to explicitly enable allowing permissions to be fixed. And if you do, you can then go to maintenance permissions. That tab doesn't normally appear. I was confused because I looked on one of my other machines and I'm like, where's the permissions thing that I thought I saw yesterday? <laughs> yeah. I thought my memory was going, but no, I'm, I'm looking and I see different screens on different machines because they, I guess, intentionally hide it, but it's, it's the thing we were talking about, verifying and repair system permissions, mm. system file permissions. That's what they say this does. I just never knew it was there. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's good. Specific where it was. Cause I was starting to question myself cause I didn't see it. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's good stuff. It's good stuff. All right. Uh, one last question, I think, about DNS for the day while we're here. I do love it. And it, you know, this has, I've been saying this for 10 years. Uh, somehow, it, it, it's got to be just something synchronous with the universe that a new topic will surface for us. And miraculously, we've got like, you know, as I'm putting together the, the show notes or the, the agenda, you know, we just have the questions co- sort of pile in all week. And, and then I look at them and it's like, wait, there's four questions about this. There's five about that. It's just amazing that this, this continues to happen. Obviously some of the topics we seed them intentionally or otherwise, you know, and, and then you folks write in, but sometimes it just, it just happens. So uh, Mike, and I love it by the way, writes, I know you guys have covered aspects of this before, but here it goes. I'm looking for your advice on the best way to set up my DNS settings. Oh, I guess this is your question, John. I guess I'm going to read it and you'll answer it. In my house, we use an iMac, a MacBook, three Windows 10 computers, an iPad, two iPhones, three Apple TVs, a Roku, a TiVo, and a Samsung Smart TV. We have two Airport Extreme routers at home, but we have several Linksys routers and an Airport Extreme in our vacation home. So the question is... On which devices do we set the DNS to our preferred 8.8.8.8, which is Google's DNS? And when we use our mobile devices at friends' houses, will the DNS settings on our devices take precedence over whatever they have set on their routers? John? So the first answer is, where should you set the DNS that you want to go to? And if you're using... And I'm going to put the caveat in here, but if you're using DHCP, then I would almost certainly say you want to do it on your router. Because what happens, part of DHCP that's really not advertised, I, I think it's in the spec somewhere, but you know, when you hear about what DHCP does, you don't really see uh, some of the things that happens underneath. But in my experience, what happens is if you're doing DHCP, uh, one thing that comes from the DHCP server that you're talking to is also uh dns and a lot of times it's actually the ip address of now it could be the ip address of an actual uh, dns server or it could be the ip address of the router kind of does a pass through so the answer is where should you set it is on your primary router now it sounds like he has multiple routers so hopefully those are in bridge mode um otherwise this could get confusing i'm almost certain they are so whatever your primary router is it's connected to your cable modem or dsl modem or whatever your your device is uh, there's probably going to be an entry already filled in on there that's going to be taken from your ISP. So what you want to do is manually replace that. Um, and it's pretty much in the same place. Uh, I think on airport, it's airport utility, internet, and then DNS. And you're going to see a field that should be filled in, like, you know, grayed out. And if you want to put something else in there, you put something else in there, like 8888. And I actually did this, Dave. So I actually ran 
uh, Namebench and actually decided to punch in the IP of um, OpenDNS. They indicated they were the fastest for me versus my ISP. Huh. I'm like, okay. That's cool. I, I've been using um, OpenDNS for a while. I like it for their filtering, but I also like it because they're fast. Yeah. That's the thing. Um, those still T.co. Sorry, a little tangent here, but I don't know about you, but I'm having problems with Twitter links. They use the T.co uh, resolver and it always gets stuck in Safari. I don't know if it's Safari or the latest update or I thought it was maybe my DNS because it was trying to, as far as I could tell, it was trying to resolve the T.co link. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a shortened Twitter it's, link. It's and, Twitter's and it kept own. getting stuck there. And I'm like, so it wasn't the DNS, but you know, it seemed, I seem to be surfing faster. So it was, yeah, so so the the name bench selected OpenDNS, so I punched that one, and it's like a two hundred dot something. Yeah, yeah, IP. yeah. They'll show you what they. Well, are. Once you punch that in on your primary router, then that's what everyone is going to be using. Unless, although, yes, to the go. second part of his question, unless you put in manual DNS on your devices, in which case, in most cases, I should say, those will take precedence over what you get from the DHCP server. So if you put 8888 right. on your iPhone, uh, then when you're at a friend's house, it will use 8888, um, regardless of what your friend's DHCP server sends to you. In most right. cases. Yeah, and depending on the device and that, yeah, kind of followed up to his question is if we're, if we're on another network like a friend's place, then how can you get to 8888 and that's how? Yeah. Uh, on iOS, if you go to Wi-Fi info, there's going to be like a little info window and then you'll, you'll see a DNS. Uh, likewise on OS 10, you'd go to network advanced DNS. Yep. Um, where it starts getting weird with manual Mm -hmm. DNS is if there's IPv6 involved, because I have seen it with mine Uh, where, you know, my, my route, I, I don't use manual DNS on my devices, but I do have IPv6 on my network and I believe it's Comcast that passes through an IPv6 DNS address to my devices. Cause if I look on, on my iPhone right now for my DNS and I have entered nothing manually, I see my local routers address and then I see two IPv6 addresses there. And sometimes it bypasses. Cause I know I've tried sometimes, you know, to, to, cause I have some things blocked and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and sometimes I can get past it just accidentally so that it's interesting in that sense. Not, uh, not maybe, maybe not how it's supposed to work, but it is, I'm sure it's how it's supposed to work. It's not how it's expected to work. And so that's that. Yeah. It's interesting. Good stuff. Um, I, we actually have a, another question that, that talks all about this, DHCP stuff from Scott, who I mentioned before. Actually, I think I think it's two different Scots, if I'm not mistaken. But first, I would love to talk about our first two sponsors. How's that sound, John? Excellent. All right. The first one I want to start with is Harry's at Harry's.com. Longtime listeners to the show will know Harry's. We've talked about them before. They make razor blades. Of course, they also make handles for those razor blades and shaving cream or shaving gel to use with those razor blades and now a face wash to use, right? They provide the whole package and they make these razor blades in their own factory that they bought, which does two things. Number one, super high quality blades, like the best shave I've ever had in my life, hands down. And 
the least expensive shave I've ever had in my life, hands down. This is really the best of both worlds. You get an awesome shave and it doesn't cost you a fortune. In fact, it doesn't cost you much at all. You can get started with a full kit from Harry's for 15 bucks. That includes three blades, a handle and cream or gel of your choice. 15 bucks before our shave five off coupon code. That's shave the number five OFF. That saves five bucks off of that. So now it's 10 bucks shipped to you for free. This is like a no brainer. This is a gift for every guy on your list at this holiday gift giving time. My son just turned 14. He has a December birthday. This is Lucas. You've heard him on the show. He's, he's come on and talked uh, quite a bit about, about various things. So he just turned 14. I thought, what better gift for a father to give his son than a set of razor blades? And so I got him what uh, Harry calls their winter Winston set. This is uh, a little more expensive because instead of it having an acrylic blade or an acrylic handle, rather, it's got a copper handle. 30 bucks. Of course, you can save. Five bucks off of that. So 25 bucks for you with coupon code shave five off comes with the three blades. Got it for him with the the shave cream because uh, I kind of like that. And I thought he might like that. And it's gorgeous. You got to check this out. Harry's.com. Remember the coupon code shave five off. That's shave the number five OFF. Our thanks to Harry's for sponsoring this episode. I'd also like to thank Smile. At smilesoftware.com for sponsoring this episode. They are the makers of Text Expander. Text Expander improves your communication. It really, really does. How? It allows you to create shortcuts that you can then insert into emails, Word documents, pages documents, web pages, whatever it is. In fact, when I'm filling out web pages, a lot of times I've got various pieces of information I need to put in. I have shortcuts for it, like the Mac Observer Inc. I have to fill that out a lot. I don't want to have to type the Mac Observer Inc. with, you know, capitals, comma, right? The, the period, all that good stuff. I can do it. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, finger gymnastics that I need to go through to make that happen. Not anymore. I type comma T-M-O-I. Boom. The Mac Observer Inc. There it is. I need to fill out my address, right? Comma D-H-A-D-D. That fills out my entire address, including the, the returns and the new lines and everything I need. I never screw it up. I even have John's address in there, so I don't have to remember his address when somebody asks, hey, we want to send John something or other. Boom. There it is. I've got it. I do all kinds of things this way. I do custom email signatures this way because sometimes my normal email signature isn't what I want. I want to have something custom. Boom comma, SIG, and then whatever I've chosen, B for Backbeat Media or T for a TMO thing or M for Mac Geekab thing, it's all right there. You can have it ask you for input so that when you're creating these little snippets, like when I send out the push notification to our Mac Geekab app each week, right before we do the show, uh, I have the text expander snippet set up to build that. It's a whole, it's a whole big JavaScript thing that I've got to put. I don't want to remember that but I want to insert the show number in there. Well, it asks me and I put it in and then boom, all set. Good to go. I don't have to think about anything. You got to check this out. Smilesoftware.com slash geek is the right place to visit. That's where they always put the stuff that they want us to highlight for you. And text expander is it right now. You got to check it out. Our thanks to smile for sponsoring this episode. Hi, Dave and John. My name is Scott. I'm actually contacting you through your iOS app, so woohoo, bonus points. I have a question. How in the bloody world do I get a Mac 
an old Mac, an old Mac Mini, which cannot upgrade past OS 10, 10.6, which I believe is Snow Leopard, how do I allow it to remain on my internal network, my local area network, but not have any internet access? There doesn't seem to be a way to do it within OS 10. And I have an airport time capsule, the latest tower one. And there is zero insight into ethernet wired computers, which this one is. So anything going into the ethernet port of airport uh, time capsule or, or airport extreme, forget it. You can't configure it through airport utility. You're just out of luck, apparently, as far as I can tell. So is there a way for me to take this Mac and make it so that it has no internet access because it's running an old OS 10. There's a lot of security updates that have come out since then that this one's never going to get. And is there a way for me just to block its internet access that uh, won't require me to do something drastic like put it on Wi-Fi? I think that's uh, far enough. I think we can answer this question. Actually, it doesn't matter whether it's on Ethernet or Wi-Fi. Um, as long as you're okay with what I'll call a software block. And it sounds like for what you want to do, that's going to be the easiest thing. Certainly, you could create a a hardware air gap, but then it's you, you're going to have to pick whether your computers are talking to the internet or then talking to whatever local network this one's on. If you want all of your computers to be able to see the local network and just this one to not talk out on the internet, there is a way. So on it, when your computers are on your local network, uh, they know how to access each other and they know that each other are on that same local network by the subnet mask that's assigned. And most of the time, when you look into your, you know, your various network settings that John mentioned in the last question, those are going to be that subnet mask is going to be 255.255.255.0. And what that means is any computer that shares the same first three octets. So let's say your IP address of your computer is 192.168.1.12. Okay. The, the 255.255.255.0 subnet mask means any computer with the same 192.168.1, doesn't matter what the last one is, they're all going to be visible just locally. All you got to do is reach out and ask, and they will answer if they're there. However, um, your computer then also knows that an, any computer with an IP address that's not, that doesn't start with those exact same three octets is not on the local network and therefore needs a router to assist in getting the connection to happen between the two. And this is how the internet works, right? When your computer wants to talk to a computer on the internet or that's not on its local network, which is one in the same, uh, it's, it asks the router and then that router asks another router and another router until such time as it can be narrowed down to the computer you're trying to talk to. But if you tell your computer that it doesn't have a router, then it can't talk out on the internet and by proxy, nothing on the internet can get to it because it can't respond. Okay. So what you're going to do is you're going to set up a manual IP address in network settings on this, on this computer that you've got uh, snow leopard on. And in there, you're going to assign it an IP address that's on your local network. Hopefully one that it's not assigned to another device. Cause that can get crazy. So, uh, so, you know, you'll assign it, say in my example, 192.168.1. Say, 220, something that's outside of your DHCP range, all of that stuff, you'll assign the same subnet mask, 255.255.255.0, and that's it. Leave DNS blank, and most importantly, leave your router field blank. 
That way, it doesn't know how to talk to your router and therefore doesn't know how to get out on the internet. One more thing, make sure you set IPv6 to link local only. This will keep your computer from accidentally getting an IPv6 address that is accessible from the entire world. And that should do it for you. I, th- I think that's the easiest way to get this done, John. What do you think? Um, I think another way is that if your router has parental controls to use that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because I know you can set up rules. Um, if, if I understand, and I don't know if I, 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 I think the concern was that it's such an old machine, so... Yeah, that's one reason it went on on the internet. But um, right. parental controls on the router should do that. Just turn it off forever, and so the only machines you can access effectively. Yeah, because if you try to get to the internet, whatever software is in it, and you know, I looked, uh, I got it on the TP Link as well, and I think most modern routers have some form of parental control. It's also right. in the OS, actually. So I think you could set it on either your router if it has that feature, or in the OS. Um, and even iOS, I, ha- I haven't actually messed with it. I, I should more, but even iOS has its own kind of parental controls feature or restrictions. I think it's called. I, I, I've never gone to that section. Yeah, it, it's a little different with that. It's not. Um, it, it's it's app and it's app restrictions, but it's not going to stop it. You know, my my concern with the firewalls locally on the computers or even on iOS is that they will not stop it from accessing things like software update and you know, all that other stuff. Now, presumably those things are safe, but if you ever get some DNS poisoning or spoofing or whatever, it, 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 you know, it would definitely get past that. Uh, Putting a flat restriction into your router could work. If you, again, if it truly is a brick wall, right. But like, but, at that point, I would ask, why bother risking that, right? If you, it, We know that if you take the router address out of network configuration on a device, mm-hmm. it has no way of even accidentally getting out to the network. In fact, you'll get some error messages at times, like I can't contact software update servers mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. So I don't know. I, I, um, yeah, but I, I mean, parental controls is easy. This, I'm, I'm, I don't know why I would, I would choose that, though. It's it's less definitive to me. Somebody, you know, if somebody update, if you get an update to your router firmware and somebody with parental controls says, well, yeah, we're going to block this stuff, but we really know that we want to let it out to do this one thing. And it's okay. It, you know, we, we've, in our, in our estimation, we've decided, yeah, that's all right. I don't know. I probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't worry about it with a snow leopard machine anyway. Uh, I'd probably let that still talk on the internet. So I'm probably the wrong guy to ask. So there you go. These are all good ideas. I like them. I like them. Big T is saying to use uh, time limits and timed restrictions with airport utility. Again, using, using the router to, uh, to block it. And that, that could work. Absolutely. We'll put a link in the show notes to an article that big T in the chat room at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. Hello, everybody. It's shared. It's good stuff. Good, good stuff. All right. Okay, yeah, that's what they, uh, yeah, they don't call it parental controls on the airport. Right, right. Timed access control. Yeah. The time would be never. Never. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I like this stuff. I like it when there's multiple solutions. Um, 
Yeah, I wonder I I wonder if airports timed restrictions are truly brick wall limits. You know, or or again does Apple say, well, what except for software update, that might be okay. You know, those types of things. I wonder. I'd have, we'd have to test it. I don't know the answer there. Uh while we are on the subject, Jason has a question I think that's somewhat related. He says, um, what are your thoughts on using little snitch to help block some, uh, Oh wait, wait, where am I going with this question? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. He, we're talking about tracking and, and, uh, statistics and all the JavaScript that's all over the web and that, that kind of monitors what you've done at least for your behavior. Uh, he says, what are your thoughts on using little snitch to help block some of this, you know, uh, statistics or add, uh, items, for example, Slack wants to connect to doubleclick.net. While I understand this can be used for developer stat tracking, I also try to minimize the amount of info I put out there for targeted advertising. Is denying connections to these generally okay, or do you think not worth it? My general idea so far has been to deny things I am tentative on and then re-enable the things I seem to break due to that seem to break due to limited connectivity. Um and, and I'm curious to your thoughts on this too, John. I, you know, this is one of those things that's really driven by per- personal preference and, and tolerance, right? It's hard to say what's right for any one person. Um, I personally really don't mind being tracked. It, it, um, it doesn't bother me. But I also, for the last 10 years, every week have been coming on and announcing to tens of thousands of people and really anyone that wants to listen, my full name and the city that I am in. And probably the city that I am visiting. So, I, I, you know, my life's a little bit different, perhaps, than yours. Uh, and maybe because of that, I, you know, maybe that, that informs some of my other choices, too. But, I've, I, you know, security and um, privacy are on and, and continuum. Are, and and, and uh, security, privacy, and convenience are all on a continuum, Right. And, and you kind of have to pick where on that you want to lie. And I obviously uh, have chosen convenience more. I lean more towards convenience than anything else. But, but you have to pick what you want. And using a little snitch to block that stuff uh, is, is great. It allows you that very granular control. It can be sort of obsessive at times, especially when you begin to set it up. I really wish they had some profiles that you could start with and, and build from there. But uh but that's, you know, that would be a different tool, I suppose, even, even if it were called the same thing. It would, it would serve a different need because now you'd be using someone else's personal preferences and tolerances and they may not match yours. So it's good stuff. What do you think, John? I know you're, you and I fall in slightly different spots. You're not radically different, but slightly different. Uh, what I'll do to reduce the chatter, uh, you know, he's so he's right. You know, you can get a lot of chatter. But uh, what I'll do is, you know, if it's something that I recognize like Adobe dot com or, you know, Amazon AWS, where, where it's clear that it's something that you know should be happening, that I'll do like a forever rule to. Uh, to eliminate those, if, if you want to get very specific, then the thing that that I had mentioned, uh, I think, a few episodes ago, ghostery, I think, is better if you want selective blocking of certain things i use it and yeah like you dave i mean i'm more just curious who's watching I, i'm I'm not like militant about you know disabling it everywhere because 
you know, they're coming to get me or something. Right. Uh, right. No. And that's true. Yeah. Curiosity is, is, is a perfectly reasonable, um, excuse for using these. And what he showed me one time. So there was one, you know, I fell for it. It was some link bait on Facebook. It was like, you know, the top 100, whatever. Sure. And it redirected you to a page that had a slideshow, but then I found out why the page was so unresponsive. Ghostery showed that this site had 100 individual trackers that it could identify. And I'm like a hundred. I'm like, that's why your page is such a freaking dog. <laughs> Cause it was showing a, literally there were a hundred different things all, all, you know, chatting with you, trying to find out about you and displaying ads or, or collecting info. It was just like, that's too much. <laughs> so help me learn too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And you see the services. That, that's the other thing. It's kind of interesting. I mean, you see double click and other ones that you've seen before, but then you see, I, I see these words and names and services that I've never heard of before, but apparently there's a big business in that, in them, their ads. <laughs> right. Right. Or that data. All right. Yep. And as Furby's points out, curiosity is awesome. Unless you're the cat. And then it's not so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I like it. Okay, uh, moving on here. Jan, I believe it's Jan. I'm not sure if it's Jan or, or Jan um, because the names are spelled exactly the same way. Um, regardless of their spelling, I just can't seem to find it. Uh, yeah, here we go. So Jan or Jan writes, I have been using uh, Go to My PC to run QuickBooks on a Windows 7 and Windows 10 machine. I want to run Windows on my Mac and be able to move seamlessly from Mac apps to Windows without rebooting. I'm familiar with VMware Fusion, uh, Bootcamp, and Parallels. Which of those three apps do you prefer and why? Okay, so if you want to move back and forth between your Windows apps and, and your Mac without rebooting, Bootcamp is out. Bootcamp reboots your Mac as a Windows machine, uh, and, and that's that the Mac OS is not running. It is only running and it truly is making your Mac just a windows machine. Uh, there's some benefits to that, but, uh, but it's not going to serve your purpose. And I wouldn't recommend it for what you're talking about doing. You don't need crazy performance or anything like that. Parallels fusion. And uh, I'll, I'll throw virtual box into the mix because uh, I having hung out with John F. Braun for, well, I was going to say 10 years, but we've hung out for, many times that uh, number of years uh, you always point out VirtualBox, so i'll throw that in there because it's free they're all options uh in this case i think parallels or fusion would be the ones i would recommend looking at because they allow in in their own ways truly seamless interaction between the two operating systems and by that i mean you can have an app running without having windows around it so you don't have to switch between a Windows running in like a separate screen or something and then your your OS 10. You can just have QuickBooks running. QuickBooks believes it's running in Windows and it is, but Parallels and, and VMware have gone to great lengths to be able to obscure all of that from you. So you can just switch back and forth and you can have Mail and Safari and QuickBooks and Numbers and Pages all sort of acting like they're all Mac apps. And, and that's really one of the big benefits of parallels and fusion. And I, and John, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I looked, I don't believe virtual box offers that level of, you know, cohesiveness between the, uh, the three. So, but at that point between choosing parallels or fusion for this, 
it doesn't matter. Um, you're going to be fine either way. Uh, choose whichever one you either already have or have familiarity with, because the the differences between the two are very nuanced. Um, Parallels is doing some cool stuff though. They've got uh, Cortana working, and so if you have to pick one, I would say today I'm a little more excited about Parallels, but uh, that changes every three months. So that's my thoughts. What do you think, John? If you don't mind throwing down some cash, then I'm with you. Yeah. Um, if you're on a budget, then VirtualBox will do exactly what you need. Though it won't give you, as Dave said, the, uh, yeah, last I checked, they don't really have that sort of, uh, I think Parallels calls it continuity. Yeah. They call it or, I don't know. Yeah. But they both have terminology for their uh, integration where, like you said, it, it's like running a Mac app because. It's pretty cool. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, but so VirtualBox... blur the difference between the two and allow you to go between the two. Yeah. VirtualBox for, um, for functionality-wise and performance-wise for what you're doing with just QuickBooks here, totally, totally fine. I mean, you, you, it's not going to be a problem uh, as long as you're okay, you know, sort of having to see Windows. And maybe that's fine. Depends on how much time you're spending in it. If it's two hours a week that you're kind of poking in, into QuickBooks and doing stuff, I wouldn't worry about it. If you're in it every day, this might make it, you know, might be, be worth the, whatever it is, the 50 bucks that it takes to get parallels or, or uh, VMware. Yeah. Right now I'm on par- uh, parallels is, is my preference. Same. Just because every time I see them, they, they, they're like, here, you want a license for the new version? I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean they 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 and, they're doing some and cool I'm running stuff. three VMs. I'm running an XP machine just for fun, uh, Win Seven and then a Win Ten. Gotcha. VM and gotcha. handles them all fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 both do a good job. Like I said, I'm I'm sort of my 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 lean is toward parallels right now, uh, largely because they've got some kind of cute bells and whistles. Um, well, of course, the other thing is, is they have parallels access. I mean, that could, that could allow you to do this as well, though. Then, you know, it's. Yep. Parallels access is pretty cool. Do you use that, John? Um, didn't, it's very clever technology letting you run your stuff on a iOS device. Um, but, um, I don't really have uh, any, uh, use cases. So, so, so here's the thing about Parallels Access is it, it does let you connect to your VMs from your, um, uh, uh, from your iOS devices, but it also just lets you connect to your Mac from your iOS device, and you mm-hmm. can do it remotely. It traverses firewalls without any issues. So if you want remote, easy, easy remote access to your Mac, Parallels Access really handles it, and they do some great things to iOSify your Mac experience sort of in translation. It's it's not just like getting a uh you know VNC or 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 screen sharing session open to your Mac. You can do that, but there's also just they make it easy to do it. It's it's the best iOS to Mac remote access experience that exists, I think. It resizes things in a good way and makes your Mac feel like it was built to be used with a touchscreen in a, in a lot of ways. It's actually really, really cool um, and, and worth checking out, even if you have no reason to run Windows. So, mm-hmm. And you don't need Parallels to do it. It's a separate product. So I think I got all that right. Yeah? Sounds good to me. Okay, good. 
Uh, let's see. What else do we have? John, you want to take us to Michael? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Let's see. Um, oh, that one. Okay. Right. What is that? There we go. Okay. This is a good one. I think it, we both had some, uh, advice here. So Michael has a three terabyte drive on his iMac and it has about two terabytes of data on it. I have a three terabyte USB three drive from Seagate. I use for Time Machine. Today it said that it had run out of room. The oldest backup is nine months old. I thought Time Machine deleted old backups to make room for new backups. Any idea why this is not happening? Uh, and the problem is that the, the, it's bombarding him with these messages every five minutes. So that's unfortunate. All right. I see my reply, and then I think you had a reply as well. So Go I'll ahead. start with mine. Yeah. I think yours is somewhere else here. I, I deleted mine. I, I, deleted. I, I'll. I'll, I'll oh, chime in. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want it. I didn't want you to get confused, and I, I wanted to avoid this conversation. So here we are, which we just had. Okay. That's correct. So, um, well, yes, that's what should happen with Time Machine. It, it should expire and clear out old backups once it's it's consumed, or it thinks that there's the, there's no more space left. Uh, and you, um, the only thing I can think of, and and he 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 had not gotten back with these numbers here, but they, I would have found them interesting to know about. Um, it could be that first something could be corrupted or screwed up with the data that you're reading. And for whatever reason, uh, time machine, well, it'll, it'll print out an ex- estimate of, uh, how much space, uh, it thinks it needs for doing the backup and also how much is left on your time machine volume. And you'll see that in the console. And if you filter on backup D, if you just type backup D, in the uh, search field, you'll only get entries that are relevant. So first it'll say, I found this many files. Um, and it'll give you the number of files and the amount of space needing backup. And, you know, like I, I printed a recent one I had, it said found 511 files and it needs 194 megabytes to back up. Then the next part, it says, okay, well, here's how much space I think is required on the disk, including padding. Uh, and then it'll say how much it thinks is available. Now, in this case, you know, this is kind of the ridiculous part about backup, <laughs> about Time Machine. It says eight gigs required. Do you remember the part, Dave, where I just told you it said there was 194 megabytes needing backup? Yeah. How did that just balloon to eight gigabytes required? <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, so when you see this, this is, and I wonder if this is just happening in extreme cases that it thinks there's just a monstrously huge amount of space required that it just gives up saying, I, I think it's a rounding error. <laughs> yeah, big, big one. Um, all right. So the thing is, you, what, the numbers that you see in the console should be close to the numbers that you will see. Uh, so there's also a time machine uh, preference pane, of course, that you can look up at, in system preferences. And that should also show you, well, you know, here's, you know, this many megabytes um, free and this much available. Um, now, what you could do. A lot of times it's not quite turn on and turn off again, but the thing is you can manually delete a backup in time machine. And I'm wondering if trying that will kind of kickstart the process so that the, the expiration will work again. Oh, that's uh, and an interesting idea. That. So if you go in a time machine and my suggestion was go to an early date. Um, when you're in time machine, you're going to see on the right side of the screen, you're going to see little um, uh, like go rectangles. into the restore. You're talking about going into the restore interface for time machine. 
Like not, not, not system preferences time machine, but actually just choosing enter time machine so that oh, you could, you could restore right. a file. Oh, this is brilliant. Go ahead. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then what you'll see on the right side of the screen is the index by date and time of the backups. And if you scroll all the way to the top, that should be your earliest backup. So I would suggest going to that. You have to wait a while because I asked to go back in time <laughs> or actually just search the desk. <laughs> uh, and then you're going to see what I believe is called the service menu. And it's a little gear. And if you click on that, you should see a choice delete backup. Make sure it doesn't say something else because there is a potential for you to delete all backups of... Uh, so don't touch anything in the finder window. Um, or actually, no, I'll take that back. What you should do is probably click or navigate to your hard drive. Okay. Um, I try to avoid clicking on a folder at, at this point because then you, you may get into a mode where you can potentially... Delete all backups of whatever's in that folder, and you don't want to do that. So the thing is, if you see a choice when you click on the the gear saying "delete backup," that's going to delete the backup for that date. Ah, right. And what you're going to see happen is that tab is actually going to disappear from the interface. So I'm wondering. So this is doing a form of delete operation on the backup, and I'm wondering if you do that and it succeeds, or even if it if it fails, at least it will get something going. So. Um, Those are my random or not so random thoughts uh, on the situation. That's a good idea, man. There's another one. <laughs> I kind of like yours, I think. Huh? Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, th this is um, th the problem is time machine. And we talked about this in the last show, uh, it, which it, it's the time machine. It, it gets itself tied in knots, right? It, it's going to, it's unreliable in so much as its ability to back up over time, right? Going forward, it, it restoring from it. I've actually never had a problem as long as the data is there. My two complaints about time machine are it gets to this point where it just gets itself tied in knots and can't do any future backups. And then also doesn't warn you that this is happening other than perhaps a tiny little you know, exclamation point in the menu bar, but no big message like, dude, your backups aren't working. They, it sh this should be like priority number one for the OS to tell you this, but it, it doesn't. The best thing to do is just blow it away and start from scratch. Um, hopefully have another backup. You do lose your history when you do this, right? So this is important. And it's why I maintain like three time machine backups to three different destinations on all my important computers. And that way I can blow one away without really worrying about, you know, that file that might be three weeks old because I know I've got another backup where that's going to be stored. Um, but time machine's funky, you know, like this machine here, I just noticed. And again, this is the problem. I just noticed it because we're talking about it here. Um, I looked and I've got uh, the last time it backed up. This one's set to back up to two different devices. Um, and, one of them, the last backup was on December 6th and the other, it was December 7th. It's like, you know, it's December 13th. It, maybe it would be a good idea if we kind of had talked about this, you know, and maybe if it mentioned it to me, like, yeah, it's been three days, man. You know, you haven't been backing up. And this is a piece of software that's supposed to back up every hour. So, and I look and it's like, oh, I can't find the volume. It's like, well, yeah, you can find the volume. You just, we just need to reboot the machine and then that'll get fixed. <laughs> I, but it's, it's just, I don't know. It's um, 
it's unfortunate. It's why I also run clones and all these other things because time machine just needs to be blown away. So at some point I'll need to blow it away. I get the same thing every now and then. One of my machines will say, uh, uh, the, the volume JB dash dash disc station dash time machine. I think is what I call it. It says, uh, whatever volume, uh, is already in use. I'm like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah. And it gives up. It's just like, couldn't, couldn't find a place to put the backup. Sorry. It's like, no, you can. Yeah. And like you said, sometimes you got to cycle power on the, well, you know, to to be honest, uh, to to be fair, it could be the implementation of the time machine stuff on the NAS. I don't know. Yeah. I have one of my destinations is a, uh, is a time capsule. So I'm, I'm not, I'm going to say that that's not an acceptable excuse for that particular device. (laughs) Just saying. Yeah, it's not great, but it it's also awesome at the same time. Time machine is. And and really it's far more reliable. We we wind up talking a lot on the show about network uh devices backing up time machine to network devices. It's really terrible at that. Um but that's what we all tend to do. But if you do have a disk attached directly to the machine, it's going to be more reliable. You're still going to run into some of these issues, but less frequently. John, I want to talk about our second batch of sponsors if that works for you. All right. I want to tell you about Casper because it's really important to get a good night's sleep. I like to have a good night's sleep before I do this show. I know you want a good night's sleep before or after you listen to this show. Casper.com is the place to go. Actually, Casper.com slash MGG is the place to go because that's where you're going to save 50 bucks off of some of the best and best priced mattresses that exist today. Casper makes their mattresses out of foam. I say foam because memory foam isn't inclusive enough. They use memory foam because it's super comfortable. They also then wrap the mattress in a latex foam that keeps it from getting too warm when you lay on it. So it's this dual kind of hybrid foam thing that really makes these Casper mattresses super comfortable, both in terms of the way it cradles you when you sleep and in terms of not making you too warm. It's perfect. The pricing is perfect too. Most mattresses you're going to spend for a foam mattress of this quality, you're, you know, well into the $1,000 range, no matter the size. It's just crazy. Not with Casper. Casper starts at 500 bucks for a twin size mattress. And the most you'll spend is 950 for a king size mattress. But that's retail. You don't pay retail. You listen to Mac Geek Cap, right? 50 bucks off using coupon code MGG at casper.com slash MGG. That's where you start. That's where you get this really excellent mattress, obsessively engineered. It's just perfect. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can take your own word. You get this mattress home and it comes in a perfect box that lets you get it through doorways and everything and perfect instructions to get it open, really quick setup and all of that. And then you have a hundred days, more importantly, a hundred nights to test it out. It's going to take a little while. If you've never slept on a foam mattress, it takes a little while. hundred nights. You'll know in the first week or two, if you like it, if you don't, they'll come get it for you. Give you all your money back. Cost you nothing. You got to check this out. Casper.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks. Our thanks to Casper for sponsoring this episode. I also want to thank Lynda.com 
at lynda.com slash mgg for sponsoring this episode. That's the URL you go to to get 10 days of free training videos for you. This is a fantastic site. After that, it's only 25 bucks a month. That's where the plans start. And you get access to everything, both during your 10 days free and just for 25 bucks a month. These courses are fantastic. You know, we've been talking about music in this show a little bit. We've got some questions about that. Things like Pro Tools 12, Essential Training, right? With Sky Lewin. This is a 10-hour course that they've produced just for you. And you get to stop it and start it and rewind and check the notes, everything. It's all perfect. But then they've got things like music taxes and accounting and music law, managing a band's business. These kinds of things are important to learn and Linda can help you learn them. If you want to learn development, right? Let's say you're a developer or want to be one. They've got a course, Node.js Essential Training, right? Visual Studio 2015, they've got courses on. Building a tile map editor, right? I mean, there's all kinds of these crazy things. Cake PHP Essential Training. They have general courses and really specific courses. Are you a photographer? Maybe you want to learn... uh, Photography from people like Ben Long or photos. They have a, a, a course called Photos for OS 10 Essential Training with Derek Story. If there is anyone out there that is like the authority on this stuff, it's Derek Story. He's the man when it comes to this stuff. Pixel Playground with Burt Monroy. These are rock stars that they get to do these training videos just for you. Super well produced, brilliant stuff. Totally easy. And there's thousands, literally thousands of videos available at Linda. Every time I go in here to look, to tell you about Linda, I'm finding courses that are brand new, new stuff. It's just constant. You got to check it out. Lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A.com slash M-G-G. That's where you go to get 10 days of this for free. And then after that, plans start at 25 bucks a month. And that really gets you everything. There's no catch. You just have it all. Check it out. Lynda.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Linda for sponsoring this episode. And now it's time for music questions. Michael writes, I have a new MacBook arriving in the next couple of days, replacing one I've had for five years. I'm wondering what is the best approach to setting up the new one? Because I've accumulated a lot of junk and some buggy behavior on that old one, I ideally would like to start fresh. Just re-download the apps I still want, copying over the files and folders I want to keep, as opposed to doing a full migration. From an iTunes point of view, I guess that would involve copying over the iTunes media folder from the old one and importing into iTunes on the new one. However, I'm wondering, will this cause me a world of iTunes pain? For example, if this if this makes it essentially a new iTunes library, will I end up with it uploading <clears throat> excuse me, everything again to iTunes Match or an Apple Music giving me duplicates or something on those services? Will I have syncing issues with my iPhone and iPad? I've been using Apple products for several years now, but this is my first time moving to a new back. So any advice would be appreciated. Yeah, uh, it will do all of those things if you do it the way that you mentioned. It may not it might not be quite as terrible as as you imagine, but it could be. Um, it, it, it depends on a lot of factors. And frankly, you don't want to find out much easier is to move the whole iTunes folder from uh, your old machine to your new machine. So that's home music iTunes. Move that whole folder in, assuming you kept everything in, de- in default locations. And that will uh, read your iTunes, not just your media 
but your iTunes library files and all of that. And just, it'll be your iTunes library on an, on another installation. It, it's, it's that simple. And that is exactly what you should do. Uh, there's no reason to drive yourself nuts trying to rebuild a library that you have in perfectly good shape and, and you just want to move it to a new machine. So that's my advice on that one. Any thoughts on this, John? I agree with your advice. All right. Well, I have some advice for you. There's a uh, dandy article from Apple that has this and a few other tips, and it actually tells Windows people how to do this as well. How It's sweet. basically manually, manually dragging the thing over, and it, meant, it mentions a couple other things. Um, the one thing that occurred to me is you're go, if you're going from an old machine, did, did you touch on a... Uh, I'm sorry, I was researching this here. I'll, I'll paste it in the room, but... Um, Make sure you deauthorize any machines that are going to disappear. Brilliant. Right? No, I didn't touch on that. That's that's a great thing to do with iTunes. That's right. Yeah. Just because I remember actually when I surrendered my old iPhone 5S, I don't think I followed every step in removing it from the uh, iCloud. Hmm. Because I looked over their process and I'm like, oh, wait, I forgot to do that. I mean, I, I did a reset and I think I, I turned off Find My iPhone, but I didn't do one other thing. I think I didn't sign out of iCloud. And they said, if you don't do that, you may appear. All of a sudden, your phone may appear again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Unless you change your password. I think they say, OK, if you change your password, then whoever tries to log in with the old phone. But that's true. If you're using phone. Apple Music and iTunes Match and, and even just for um apps go you got to make sure you go into on the old machine go into the store menu in itunes launch itunes go to the store menu and choose sign out it's that simple and it saves you from having to dig into you can only have five five desktop machines registered uh with any one itunes account and you can go in and tell itunes deactivate all of them and start fresh essentially punt i don't have those machines to individually sign them out and that works fine but uh, if you can do it this way, it, it helps you avoid that. I think I haven't hit the limit, but I think there's a frequency limit to the amount of times you can go into iTunes and just punt all those machines out. So you, you want to avoid that if possible. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've heard that they want to discourage you from, from doing that too often. So I think you can only do it every X months. I'm, I'm not sure. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Yep. All right. Uh, I think we've got some other questions along these lines. Yeah, we, we have um, John has a question about music. And boy, if I could find it, I would tell you all about it. Uh, there it is. Did I not put it in our Mac Geekab notebook? Anyway, uh, John writes, I recently discovered Plex and have been using it via the Apple TV app. I have an iMac that is always on where my media is stored. My question being an audiophile would ripping my music to Apple lossless format translate to better sound quality than my current MP3 320 kbps files when streamed to my Apple TV and played on my Denon home system? Does Plex downsample it to stream? For that matter, does Apple home sharing downsample also? Okay, I don't think Plex does any intentional downsampling when streaming locally. Um, on on your library uh, you know if if you're going over the internet yeah it 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 might you'd have to go into your plex server settings and and check those but uh but streaming locally i don't believe it does definitely when streaming to the apple tv locally 
uh, AirPlay does not downsample stuff. It is sent at whatever quality you have it at in uh, in iTunes. Now, as to whether you'll notice better quality if you take all your stuff and re-rip it to ALAC, Apple Lossless Audio Codec, versus 320K MP3s, probably not in most cases. I've done a lot of, uh, you know, blind testing here with high quality, you know, DACs and good headphones and all of that, because I, I went nuts about this. Longtime listeners to the show will remember that I, I guess, I guess it was about a year ago. I, I, I went nuts on, on all this stuff to really see, does it, does it matter? Um, most music that we get today, especially rock and roll, um, is mastered and produced in a way that a 320k mp3 or perhaps even better a 256k aac is going to have all the data uh for that particular song at least all the audible data for that particular song uh, and i i have in my tests if i do prefer one over the other i prefer 256k aac over 320k mp3 and a lot of that has to do with the way apple uh, the mastered for itunes program actually works but there are some tracks where I can tell the difference between a 256K AAC and a, an, a lossless thing. Dave Brubeck's Time Out album, which it's ironic that this, you know, whatever 60 year old album is the one that has this massive dynamic range. Uh, you know, it was just, I think it was recorded with four guys in a room and, uh, you know, good microphones and, and a lot of ambience and, and a lot of kind of natural reverb in the room that, um, that gets lost as it, as it trails off sometimes uh, with the, with the 256 K um, AACs. It, but it, you know, this is something I had to train myself to find. And uh, I only notice it if I'm being really particular about something. I mean, I, I can, I, it has to be a certain section of a certain song. Kathy's waltz is the, the, the one that, that I can, I can zone in on. And probably, you know, 90, maybe now 100% of the time, I could pick out whether it's lossless or, or not. But I can't tell if I'm in my living room and just playing it on, you know, my Sonos or if I'm in my car and playing it, you know, I, I, I there, I, I would have to stop and, and really listen. So whether you're going to notice a difference or not depends on you. And, and you should do some testing. There's a, there's an app called ABX tester. It's available actually both for iOS and for the Mac. And it's, it's called ABX because it's double blind. It ran, you put in the samples and it randomizes them all so that you don't know what, you know, what order it's showing them to you in. And you just say, here's the one I like better. And, and then at the end, it'll tell you, okay, this was part of this group. This was part of that group. And, uh, and it's free. We'll put a link to Mac ABX tester in the, in the show notes so you can play with it. And it's probably worth playing with it and, and just testing it yourself and seeing, yeah, okay. Yep. I like this better. I don't like that. Um, you should be able to airplay it to your, uh, to your den on receiver. So you can actually listen that way and, and tell in that environment and then you'll know I, I, And everybody should do that. If, if you, if you think you care about this stuff, it's worth it because then you can listen in peace knowing um, I care and yet here I don't notice and that's okay. That's my thoughts on it, John. Right. I don't know if I shared this article with you here, but Dave, did you know that the 
different NAS devices can impact the audio quality of digital audio data? I've seen this article. I have, I have to say, okay. I've seen this article. I, I, for, I started I, thinking case, about it when you started talking, yeah. though. I know you're, you're I'm just... Yeah, yeah, you're, no you're talking way. about, I, I trust your judgment. <laughs> now, the thing is, I trust your judgment when you say, if you try, you can hear the difference. But uh, for those that don't know, and I'll, I'll post it, just it's an article by this place that claims that the, the, the NAS can impact the quality of digital audio, which is, of course, ridiculous. <laughs> but they claim they, they use words that try to make it sound like they can hear the difference. And, and it just gets hilarious, uh, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I mean, we all have to be. And this is why I, I bring up this tool called ABX Tester. We all have to be aware it, it, in this and in everything we do of confirmation bias. If I believe that my turntable sounds better then my Mac with an audio engine D1 DAC and, uh, you know, some AKG headphones or something, or those, those blue MoFi's are fantastic headphones, right? If I believe that my turntable on my old crummy stereo with my, you know, 30 year old Fisher speakers sounds better than, than my Mac and my D1 and my, my MoFi's, I'm going to be correct. And I will know in my heart of hearts, that the sound coming from over there is better than the sound coming from here. But that's it. it, it, There's no empirical data there. It's just my will to believe that I like that better. And there's something to be said. I'd kind of like flipping records on a turntable and all that, but it doesn't actually sound better. You know, it's certainly not in my setup. You might, but if you had a turntable is super high quality, it would certainly sound better than my warbly old one. But there's something nice about interacting with the music and touching it. And, you know, that whole process of every 20 minutes, you, you know, you're engaged with the music as opposed to it just sort of fading into the background because you don't have to get up and flip the record or whatever. So, um, yeah, it, with this stuff with the NAS thing too, it, you know, it, it, if you start with a thesis that, yes, it's, it's going to be better, well, you're probably going to find that out unless you can truly do blind testing. And then, and we're talking about digital data, a NAS device, just like it doesn't change your word documents. When you open them, it doesn't change your music files. It's like, this is crazy. Oh no. The bits are rendered slightly differently. No, that's crazy talk. Now, maybe if it's a NAS device that has like an HDMI output on it and it's doing the conversion, Okay, now we can have a different conversation because now we're not talking yeah, yeah. about, you know, reading data off a disk differently, which is crazy. Uh, we're talking about using a, uh, you know, what, what quality DAC is it? And where's the power source come from? Is it the same power source as the disk? And it does the rotation of the disk impact the power source's ability to be, provide consistent power to the, to the, to the DAC? And when I say DAC, I mean the digital analog converter right so it's taking uh the digital data and converting it to analog and every piece of audio has to go through if it starts its life digitally it has to go through a DAC because our ears are analog devices so you know then then you can have a conversation but if you're just talking about some device over there that's streaming digital data it's the same digital data Mm -hmm. yep Mm -hmm. sorry that was a little bit of a rant i'm glad you set me up for that john that was that was fun I didn't even know. I love it. Morons. <laughs> yeah. If you see different differences in your word documents, opening them from one NAS to another, then I guarantee you, you'll see the same difference with your music. All good. 
All right. Yeah. Science. Science is a handy thing because it takes confirmation bias out of it, you know? Um, and, and it, it, it's a good thing to believe in because it, it'll keep you from, well, looking like those morons. Anyway, where are we here? Oh, why, why don't we stay on the audio topic? This one, you'll like this one, John, if, uh, if you haven't been here. Rob writes, he says, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you guys were talking about different headphones, in-ear, over-ear, on-ear. I wanted to chime in that I've been using some on-the-ear headphones for many years. I've listened to a lot of different podcasts, headed by Mac Geek Cab, of course, and tons of audio books. Often I'm listening for easily 12 hours a day on the weekends. The weekends are filled with yard work and housework, and it's much nicer to listen when your hands are not tangled in cords all the time. My cool thing found is the newest set of my newest set of Bluetooth headphones. My old old Motorola's died after four years, and I recently came across SoundBot's Bluetooth headphones. For any anyone interested in this sort of thing, I bought the SoundBot SB221 uh, folding headset, which features Bluetooth 4. It claims to last for 20 hours of playtime. And uh, really, truly does last about double my old my old headphones it says uh, it has all the features you would like. Uh, you would expect like volume controls, program skipping and call answering. And you can easily find it for less than 15 bucks. So there you go. Uh, they are actually a whole lot more comfortable than the old headsets I have because they fold and because of the padding on the earphones. It says here comes my challenge. I thought I'd watch a movie using this new, more comfortable Bluetooth headset. However, when watching video, specifically Hulu, from my 2012 15-inch MacBook Pro, the audio is delayed. It's anywhere from 20 to 30 frames, two-thirds of a second to a full second. It's not horrible, but it is annoying. I turned on the Google Food to see if I could resolve the issue, only to discover that it shows up widely on both Macs and PCs. Some noted that certain devices, uh, i.e. Netflix, demonstrated little or no problem, indicating that it may be something other than Bluetooth, which I find difficult to believe. One poster suggested a terminal command to fill core audio's buffer. I tried that and restarted the video, and it seemed slightly better, but not completely repaired. Any ideas? Yeah, um, this is a common problem. Uh, if you think about it, Bluetooth requires... Bluetooth does not send audio uncompressed. Okay, uh, it uses one of a variety of codecs. It's either going to be SBC, which is really old and crummy, but again, depending on your listening source or the, 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 uh, you know, the, the source of the audio, it may not matter. Then there's Aptex, APTX, which is much, much higher quality. And now Apple's, uh, even using their own AAC Bluetooth codec, uh, I'm told, although I'm not sure what devices, so what end devices support it in any event, it has to be compressed digitally and then uncompressed digitally in the headphones and then run through a digital to analog codec, a DAC inside the headphones, to turn it into analog sound for your ears. This takes time. Um, you will always have a delay with Bluetooth. It's why if you're doing conference call type stuff with like Skype or Google Hangouts, you can't use Bluetooth speakers because the delay will cause a lot of, uh, it'll cause the whole uh, hands-free thing and, and, uh, um, you know, they've, they've got this technology in Skype that, that blocks sound from, from looping around and getting feedback. You'll get that feedback. You'll get that echo because the sound is coming out of the speakers later than Skype is sending it to them. And, and it doesn't know how to address that. So uh, you're having the same problem here. The one way I know of to solve it is to play all of your videos 
through the VLC app. Uh, VLC, it's a great handy app. We just talked about the Apple TV version that's, uh, that's coming, or I guess that's out, right? It's coming, it's out. I don't know. It's coming. Uh, anyway, on the Mac, you can use the F and the G keys while watching to adjust the sync. What it does is it delays, it sends the audio and delays the video so that by the time you see the video, the audio has made it to your ears. But not every app supports this, of course. Um, some TVs do because they know that you're going to have this lag with sound and, and you can adjust that way. But, um, but you've got to, you know, it, it's a case by case thing. In the end, you can't rely on Bluetooth to do sound for video. It's an interesting problem to solve though, John. Thoughts? Mm, not really. Okay. Nothing other than, yeah, it's a, uh, when you have, different technologies moving at different speeds using different mediums. Sometimes it's really hard to get them all to sync up. Sync is not easy. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to put it. John. I mean, I still remember in the back in the, in the age, you know, when QuickTime first came out, we were all amazed. It's like, wow, they, they kind of got that right though. Even then they didn't always get it right. That's true. We, we lived and used computers in a time you and I did. And, and many of our listeners, of course, not all, um, when, when this was expected, like the, the sync issues were something you dealt with on a daily basis if you were trying to play video, but it was all very new. And you're right. Yeah. QuickTime was the first one that it was just like, boom, we're done with this silliness now. And, and now we truly are done with it unless you introduce something like this to the mix. Hey, um, I have a couple of uh, cool things found that, that uh, I've been promising that we would talk about. And, uh, and I want to. I want to talk about them now, John. The first is the, um, and I talked about this when we, when I first got it, the Netgear R8500, their new, their newest Wi-Fi router. They call it the Nighthawk X8. Now this is, um, as I mentioned, a tri-band quad stream router. And what that means is it has one 2.4 gigahertz band and two 5 gigahertz bands in the router. That's the tri-band thing. And then quad stream means it has four antennas. Actually, it has eight antennas, two, four on board and, and four that are externally adjustable. And that allows it to do all kinds of very cool things, uh, beam forming being one of them. And then as time moves on, some additional technology that can be put into clients that allows um, really targeted uh, not only range, but but throughput and it, they've done a great job with this. They put the, they put the uh, amplifiers for the antennas. I think I told you about this, John, they put the amplifiers for the antennas at the tips of the antenna uh, to keep their power source separate from the motherboard, to keep any noise from the motherboard from affecting them. Um, physical, you know, physical difference. And they found that it actually makes a difference. I, I can't, I, I can't speak to that because uh I'm not a crazy hardware engineer, but I can speak to how well this thing works. So in terms of range, I run three routers here or three access points here at my house and office. Uh, the main one is upstairs on the second ish floor of the house in, in my bedroom these days, actually. And then I have one in the office. That's a kind of a, a bridge mode router. And then one kind of down in the living room. And so I've created this triangle of routers or access points, I should say. That, that give me coverage throughout uh, my office, my house, and then mostly my yard. Uh, 
but I, they all have to be wired together and they have to be configured properly. And I've done that. And these are high quality, you know, they're the Buffalo 1750 routers. They're not brand new, but, uh, but they're all, you know, they were top of the line when they came out a couple of years ago. And I need all three of those to, to get the coverage where I, where I need it. When I tested this uh, R8500 from Netgear, I turned all, the other two off. I replaced my main router with it for about a week. I'll tell you why I went back. Uh, it, it, it has to do with some functionality. But uh, I replaced my main router with it for a week, and I turned off the Wi-Fi on the other two bridge mode things. I didn't turn them off because I'm using them actually as like switches and things like that. Uh, but, uh, but in terms of Wi-Fi, the only thing I had running was this R8500. I get coverage with this thing out at the street, which has got to be what, 300 feet from the house. And I tried this morning with the old, you know, with my, my normal router setup, I don't get any coverage at the street. And that's with three routers, one of them much closer to the street than, than, uh, than this thing ever was. It's really quite amazing what they've done with this. Now I mentioned tri-band, right? So 2.4 gigahertz, that makes sense. Why would you want two five gigahertz bands? Well, there's two potential reasons. Number one is you could use one of the five gigahertz bands as a backhaul, right? So instead of, if you did need a wireless extension, instead of using power line, which is limited even with the new ones to about 110 megabits per second, you could use something like the Netgear EX7000 to uh, use the, use one of the five gigahertz channels as the backhaul between the two routers. And then that way you're not sharing a signal that, um, that you're using for your backhaul. You, you can then broadcast from 2.4 with that device. So that's one of them. But the other is the, and the router will do this automatically. It's called smart connect. You turn it on in the router. And when a five gigahertz device connects, it figures out how fast it's going to let it connect. Right. You know, based on, is it 802.11n? Is it 802.11ac? How far away is it? You know, what kind of interference am I getting? And then it will, the router will decide which of the two five gigahertz bands to put it on so that only things that can truly do high speed get assigned to one. And then the other ones that are just sort of like, you know, mid-level devices or, or out of range devices or whatever aren't getting in the way of these others that are just blazing speed at the router, which is pretty darn cool. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not inexpensive. It, I think, I think retail on it's three ninety nine. You can probably find it less than that. But if you're in a scenario where you need multiple routers uh, to get either your coverage or to get the right speeds to everything, this one might just solve your problems in one. And uh, you know that's their goal with it is just make it easy, and you're good to go. So it's uh it's cool. I'm 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 quite enamored with it. My problem is, and the reason that I I can't bring myself to leave it plugged in. I would love to have this as my main router, uh, hardware wise, but I I'm obsessed with the DDWRT firmware. And there's one thing that no router manufacturer puts into their firmware. We I think we talked about this post show, and and that is the ability to do local DNS. Right. So we talked about DNS in the show, so that you can look up www.apple.com or whatever. I and DD Wirt has had this and I've been using DD Wirt for a decade now. I can assign my computer's names like iMac office and iMac house and you know, all that stuff. And it just works. Any device can look up local devices and it's really handy. Once you have that, if you're a geek and, uh, and Netgear doesn't do that. And unfortunately Netgear has not, uh, released the, uh, 
chipset documentation or whatever it is they need to release to the guys that that write DDWRT. But I think it's coming. So DDWRT may be workable on this router in the uh, in the not too distant future. So it's a cool router. If you're if you're not obsessed with DDWRT, check out the R8500. If you are, Netgear's R7000 is pretty good. So that's where I am with it, John. Any questions on that one? Where I am is I'm unhappy. The, the one thing I'm unhappy with with my Archer C9 yeah. is that the software that they had that would allow you to do printer sharing, so you plug your USB printer into the router yeah. and it would let you share it on your network. Um, that broke because yeah, it only works up to 10.10. Oh, interesting. Well, it's uh, as far as I can tell, it's an unsigned kernel extension and... 10.11 is enforcing that. And it's like, That's nope. Right. But it's a, it, yeah, the, in order to map properly, it's kind of clever. So it actually tricks your computer into thinking it's mapping a USB device when it's actually a USB device plugged into mm. the router. Oh, it's oh, okay. It's networked USB. I, I see. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I haven't fixed that yet. So temporarily what I do is I have my inkjet plugged into my Mac Mini and, and I share it that way. Yeah, a better way to deal with that is to use like the Lantronics XPrint server um, because that it, truly turns it. your printer into an, a networked printer as opposed to trying to do this weird, you know, it's USB, let me trick you into this thing that uh, I've had bad experiences with that over the years. You know, I wanted to like that and I actually still have one of their devices. The thing is the two printers that I have. Yep. So yeah, so Lantronics is normally a great device for sharing your printer over over a network. Um, yeah, I mean, it's USB on one side and Ethernet on the other, right? Yeah. Or Wi-Fi. And then there you go. But um, the last I tried to use it with my inkjet, it had a problem with the different trays and that it wouldn't take the paper from the right one or it wouldn't output it to the correct tray. It just was confused by my inkjet. Maybe it won't be anymore, so I'll, I'll give it another try. And my <laughs> laser printer had a version of PostScript that was so old they couldn't understand it either. Well, yeah. I mean, if you want to do this stuff, you've got to get some uh, inkjet printers. I, well, I my usually... inkjet is pretty modern. My inkjet is only about five years old. It's a, it's a wide, uh, you know, I can do 13 by nine on oh, it, but it, yeah. it, um, but oh, I mean, it worked when I plugged it into the, uh, you know, my airport. So, um, no, it was just the, the, the trace selection code. And I think it may have been fixed in the HP driver. When I tried it, like I said, the last time I tried it, I always try to print a photo from, you know, the, the photo tray, it's like, no, no, take the paper from the tray that the paper's in. And it, it would, it just couldn't figure it out. There, there was some mapping issue. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it another whirl. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a driver thing. I mean, it, yeah, that kind of stuff's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I want to mention very quickly here because it's, it is cool. Uh, I, I get a lot of speakers to test here. I don't bore you folks with most of them because most of them are just crap. And I'm really particular about things. Um, so, uh, and it, this annoys PR people to no end. It also annoys my wife because uh, my house is literally filled with speakers sometimes. And, uh, and again, most of them are junk, but Arct, I believe it's Arct, A-R-C-H-T has this thing called the Arct one and it's worth looking at it at arctaudio.com. Um, it's a, it's a speaker that looks like a, it's like a big cone. It kind of looks like a rocket ship. Um, it has, it's a Wi-Fi speaker, works with, you, you know, AirPlay in, in that way, uh, setting it up was very, very easy. And 
because of the way it, it it's designed, it sends sound 300 evenly 360 degrees around it. So I put it in the middle of our kitchen again, annoying my, my wife and my family, um, not because of the speaker, just because it is a speaker and, uh, and plugged it in and, and streamed, you know, some audio to it from my, from my iPhone and you, you know, walking around it, you could hear, I put it on the Island in the middle of the kitchen. Right. And everybody's in, kind of doing things and prepping dinner and we're all around it and nobody had a, a bad spot. Uh, it really, it's, it's pretty cool. And, uh, and it looks cool. It's, it's big. It, it's bigger than you think it is when you look at these pictures online, I'll say, although actually one of them kind of shows it, but it's, 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 it's tall, you know, maybe a foot and a half tall. I mean, it's a big, big kind of thing. And, uh, it, you can use Bluetooth. Like I said, you can use, uh, airplay. It also has, you know, other Wi-Fi uh, built into it and you can USB or just aux port right into it. So it's a cool design and, uh, and the sound was good. Um, I, I, I was, I was impressed by this thing. So, um, I, I wanted to share and, uh, and there you go. So it's cool. It's, it's a unique thing. Perfect for cool stuff found. So, um, so there you go. Something to check out. And if you have the right setup, you know, a lot of us, I mean, we put our speakers against walls or, or whatever, because that's sort of how that works. But if you have a setup where it would make sense to have it in the middle of a room, uh, and, and it's, that's a weird thing because you need a power source in the middle of the room, but the kitchen Island was sort of a perfect test opportunity. Uh, I, I recommend it. Check it out. Arced. And it's the one. Hey, or sorry. I'm seeing now on the website. It's arc is how I'm supposed to pronounce this. A R C H T. It's the arc one thoughts on that, John, before we, uh, before we migrate our way to the next, uh, the next episode. No, no. Well, then it's time. I think bring the band in out of the out of the. I was going to say out of the cold, but it's really. Not, I don't think it's that cold outside. <sighs> so I mentioned it once in the show. Feedback at macgeekab.com is the address that you can use to send us your cool stuff found, your thoughts, your questions, your tips, whatever it is. We want to learn new stuff too, so we love to hear from you. No way, man. I'm going to use feedback at MacGeekab.com. Oh, dude, we can't use that. Um, premium at MacGeekab.com is the one you can use because you're a premium subscriber. And if you're not, you can learn more about that at MacGeekab.com. 206-666-GEEK is the phone number. John Geek is? 4335. I want to thank uh, the folks at Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show to us. I want to thank everybody that joins our uh, Facebook group. That thing's growing like crazy. MacKeekab.com slash Facebook is the easiest way to get there. And uh, and all you got to do is ask to join. And, and you can see everything that's posted, but before you can post, you, you need to ask to join. But uh, everybody's usually approved within about a, an hour or less. I get notifications on my phone when you try to join. John does, too, as do... Um, several of our, our moderators that uh, that often beat us to it. So it's good stuff. you got to check us out there. I want to thank all the folks in our podcast marketplace. Of course, Harry's uh, with coupon code SHAVE5OFF. Casper at casper.com slash MGG where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks. 
text expander from smile at smilesoftware.com slash geeklinda.com at lynda.com slash mgg for 10 days free. Squarespace at squarespace.com slash mgg with coupon code mgg saves you 10%. Imazing, imazing.com, one of my favorite pieces of uh, utility software. Go to check them out. Coupon code MGG saves you 20%. Gazelle at gazelle.com. The folks at Otherworld Computing, maxsales.com. I don't think I could live without them. And of course, Barebone Software at barebones.com. John, I started this. You end it. You have any advice to share before I, uh, before I, with me, before I head on for the week? I am going to end it. And I'm going to end it by telling everyone that. If you do nothing else this week, make sure you don't get caught. Made up.